Welcome to the Cultural Life of the Nobel Prize in Literature podcast, where we explore the literature prize's social, ideological, and institutional functions as the most recognized literary honor in the world. Amidst mounting skepticism towards the legitimacy and credibility of the Nobel as an arbiter of global literary excellence, its status as the preeminent literary prize remains. However, our understanding of the uses of the Literature Prize's prestige has yet to be fully fleshed out. We believe it is important to think about what we stand to gain and lose by preserving the global significance of the Nobel. So in this podcast series, we speak with scholars and writers from around the world to discuss the Nobel Prize in Literature's prominence as a signifier of meaning, a structuring of discourse, and even a narrative motif in different cultures and societies. Welcome to the Cultural Life of the Nobel Prize in the Literature Podcast. And today we have Dr. Gloria Fisk with us. Um, and Dr. Gloria Fisk has published a, a very well-reviewed and widely cited uh, book uh, called Orhan Pamuk and the Good of World Literature. And uh, that book is a fascinating study on uh, Pamuk and world literature at large. Uh, and their role in the Western world. Um, so Dr. Fisk, maybe I can first ask you uh, about the title of that book, um, specifically the second part of it, the good of world literature. What do you mean by good uh, for your book? So the, the idea of um, the good of world literature, I wanted that term, the good, um, to sort of operate in a bunch of different ways. Um, partly, I think the most sort of obvious one to a lot to, from a from the perspective of American readers, um, which, you know, the American public, the American literary public is so big that it's um, it's a significant force in the kind of construction of world literature, which was something I wanted to think about too. Um, so from the way that American readers are taught to think about world literature is that um, it has some kind of benefit that is on one hand ethical, that there's a way that when we read literature from another place or about a person unlike myself, that I gain some capacity for empathy or understanding and that that makes me like a better person. And that that particular kind of becoming a better person also has some political benefits. So it's ethical and political that it sort of makes me a more global citizen, that it gives me more political kind of capacity to think flexibly if I have a, a, the kind of humanistic understanding of other people that one gets through literature. And then to a lesser degree, I think there's this conception of some kind of aesthetic benefit um, that is also about an idea of class that most Americans don't think of in terms of class, but that it obviously is that there is, a, I mean, for literary critics, we would think about this in terms of the kinds of ways that Bourdieu talks about mm. capital, that there's a sense of like becoming a more sophisticated person, um, that sort of engagement with a kind of global culture makes us better prepared for a global economy. So there's a kind of, um, there is some kind of economic good that comes indirectly from our engagement with world literature that's about becoming a member of a kind of global elite. 
Um, yeah. And then lastly, also one other about Please. the idea of in a much more sort of kind of um, nitty gritty mundane or material way about books as commodities, the, the ways that a writer like what does I was really interested in the question of like what a writer has to do to gain a global audience from the from everything from the navigating these complicated political contexts that we'll, we're talking about but also about just gaining access to a publisher who is part of a multinational conglomerate that will be able to sell their work all over the world so all of those things yeah 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 I, I think it's very fascinating because you reach into uh, not only the ethical, but also the economics, the the the, the capital you mentioned, but the Borduzian capital way of thinking about uh, the impacts of literature on society. Um, I'm just wondering, like, when you frame right the the ethical uh, lessons that uh, readers would want to glean from reading world literature, would you say specifically uh, something that American readers would like because you know, going back to maybe like what uh, Horace Engel would talk about, you know, the N Nobel permanent secretary, the former one, he, he mentioned uh, how American literature or American readers seems to be very isolated. And, yes. uh, and so it doesn't really have a global perspective. Do you think that is a specifically a, a type of, I wouldn't say like insecurity, but maybe a type of need that specific like American readers would, would think they, they want? That they, you mean that they would, is it a kind, that they would think the desire, they want this, yeah, like, or this expect, kind of yeah. globality or something? Yeah, 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 um, yeah, yeah. It's, that's such an interesting question because I think actually most, like, if you were to just take sort of a broad cross section of, let's say people who buy literary fiction. So that's not, that's already like a subset of American readers. Like most people, it's a small, it's a relatively small, you know, the, the consumers of Nobel Prize type literature is a subset everywhere. I mean, not just in America, but like not everyone reads those kinds of books. So when we take that section of books, that section of readers rather, I think most of them are not consciously thinking about these kinds of things like these are sort of academic concerns right that most people don't think about but in a broad cultural way I think we are I think most Americans come to these types of questions through a more domestic conversation about multiculturalism that's mostly about like sort of racial and ethnic I think the sort of prominence of racial and ethnic difference as a category for American thinking is so strong that Americans are really bad, I think, at thinking about transnational conditions. Like the idea that, I mean, I think part of what, part of what was so interesting to me about this, the Pamuk situation was that like for American readers, they interpreted him mostly as, I mean, it, this was like shortly, you know, it was 2006. So it was like during the whole conversation about the war on terror and all that stuff. And so um, Orhan Pamuk was very gratifying, I think for a lot of American readers to, to, to see because they understood him as this kind of like 
gentleman scholar from an Islamic country who spoke in a way that they understand and had the same kind of humanistic values that speak to them. And so that they sort of projected a lot of anxiety onto mm -hmm. him. And mm -hmm. when we're like, oh, he makes me feel better. Like he makes mm -hmm. me feel mm -hmm. like actually we can get along with these people because they're just like us. And I think mm -hmm. in, in a similar way, um, Americans are so I think um, Engdahl's point was correct. <laughs> you know, I think that American readers are extremely insular and very, very um, like even even people who are pretty like think of themselves as pretty global in their orientation. I'm not talking about people who are like Trump voters who have like nationalistic, like really overt national. Like I think even people who are sort of like liberal elite type people just have a like this sort of Americanness of their worldview is mm. so strong that mm. it's it's a little bit mind bending mm. for them to think about, for example, like what does Orhan Pamuk have to do because his nationality is such that he doesn't have legal protections to like we we were talking before about the mm. idea of like should should a writer be political? Mm. Like I think in an American to the American reader, that is not even a question. It's like, yes, they mm -hmm. should be political. They should have a sort of like reflexive kind of voice of freedom type of thing. Mm -hmm. And that's just a very American conception of how literature works yeah, in the world. Yeah, that's what, that's what I was going to say, because <laughs> coming back to like my, my experience or my students, whenever I want to introduce a writer to them, uh, I'm not sure the political conditions are their first concerns. Rather, their first concerns is this writer famous? And after I read him or her, does that make me look smarter because uh, yeah. the prestige? <laughs> so that's why I like the prize, yeah. the Nobel Prize, even for Chinese writers, like when I teach Gaoxin Jian, um, I used to like try to go into, okay, this guy, is without isms and mm -hmm. he is like very subversive, but I don't think that's like the best uh, pitch to the students. Yeah, Rather, the right. first pitch would be Nobel Prize winner. You know? Interesting. And, and yeah, so I think. So you're. Why saying, do you think yeah, that is? Yeah. Why do you think that is? Do you think that? Do you think that is kind of because of this sort of Berdusian idea of like literature is a form of cultural capital that like they want to gain, that it actually feels meaningful to them to kind of increase their cultural capital in that way? Yeah, I think so. It's just um, because literature in, in, in Hong Kong, at least, uh, from my understanding, is still a very, yeah, it, it's a cultural activity. Um, and when people say, oh, you study literature, they're like, wow, you study literature. There's a glow to you because mm. it's not... Is something not very practical, but yeah. at the same time, it's very admirable, right? Because in Hong right. Kong, it's a very uh, capitalistic, economically driven society. So, oftentimes, right. you know, the the most desirable careers are you know being a lawyer or working in investment banks or uh, you know be be a, a teacher, you know, something right. stable, right? But if you say, okay, yeah. you study literature, they're like, wow you have a lot of courage and you must be very <laughs> cultured and your English or your language skills must be very, very good. And so yeah. we appreciate you. On, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, there's that 
producing glow. I, 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 yeah, I agree with you um, in, in Hong Kong. Your, your book, when you talk about uh, the good of world literature is not so much Western world broadly, right? But more specifically uh, US uh, case study. What I was trying to think about was really Anglophone markets. Mm. Like, so, so, uh, which obviously like American markets dominate that, like be just by size, but are also not, um, not at all exclusive. You know, there's a sort of like, um, sort of the globalization of the English language, obviously like in Hong Kong, you know, the sort of the literary market in, in English is huge and complicated and um, not. So, I was trying, when, when I originally started thinking about it, I was thinking a lot also about the European Union because that was some, you know, the sort of negotiation between Turkey and the European Union was kind of um, spooling out at that point. And, um, and Orhan Palmuk's political sort of interventions were understood to be, um, you know, meaningful in that context too. So um, I wasn't trying to think exclusively about the United States, but about the globalization of the market mm -hmm. that was kind of shifting at that time also. And, and still, I think from like, if like we think of like Pascale Casanova's sort of idea of this world republic of letters centered in Paris. And I think like for literary critics, there's a kind of general consensus that 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 point, that center has moved to the United States to, to in a material way, not necessarily in a cultural way, that there are lots of centers in a cultural way, but that's economically mm -hmm. that the United States has become sort of the sort of capitalist center of that just by virtue of like corporations, the, the sort of corporations that drive it. But then- We'll, we'll definitely get to that, right? Uh, but yeah. uh, your, your book, uh, like we mentioned before the, the podcast started, ha, uh, is looking at uh, world literature through uh, your study of Orhan Pamuk. Uh, and maybe we can talk a little bit about that part of the book, right? Because uh, that first half of the book, you, you, you talk about, you use the word teach, right? How uh, the novels, world literature can teach the readers uh, certain things, right? For example, uh, non-Western culture and history. And what's interesting from your reading of Pamuk, right, is he, he isn't a very straightforward writer in terms of giving their reader, giving his readers that picture of Turkish culture and history. Yeah, and you, you use words, for example, like hazy or uh, blurring the fiction and nonfiction. And mm -hmm. so what, what's interesting for me is if, like you mentioned earlier, how American readers or Western readers in general, they, they do care about the politics. And so they, in a way, they should want something more, like less ambiguous, right? Like, okay, mm -hmm. just like, give me the, the details, give me your thoughts on this so I can have my own interpretations on this, right? Because like, I think if you think about this, it's kind of like how a teacher, right? When you go into a class and deliver a lecture on a material, if you deliver materials in a very hazy way, you're not okay. gonna get a really good teaching evaluation now. So mm -hmm. thinking in that context, I'm just wondering, what does that, like 
yeah, maybe you can comment on a little bit about Pamuk's sort of blurry approach and Baker's approach to Turkey. Yeah, this is super interesting to me. I think, I mean, Pamuk has actually written a really great essay about this that I give to my students a lot that's called Who Do You Write For? Hmm. And in that essay, it's a, it's a short, short essay. And in the, it, he begins kind of autobiographic. He's it, like the point of the essay is like, or the sort of frame for it is that every place he goes, people ask him this question, who do you write for? And he begins by framing it autobiographically, saying it's kind of like actually um, a little bit akin maybe to what you were saying about like the sort of how people respond to you as, as someone who works in literature in Hong Kong, like he, mm. but in a more negative, like the sort of negative flip side of that, he said, you know, that when he was young and people would say, who do you write for? The kind of implication of it was like, how are you going to support yourself? Like, who's mm. going to buy these books? Like literature is not a, it's not a career. Like in Turkey, you cannot support yourself this way. So that was like the sort of first way that he encountered the question. But then once he sort of became you know, a published writer and gained some success that um, he would encounter this question sometimes from, Tur from Turkish readers and sometimes from readers outside who he at that time, I think was mostly referring to as European, like, but sort of whatever, anything non-Turkish. And he said, either way, whether it's Turkish or something else, like, the, the person asking this question wants him to say, I write only for Turks, because there's a conception that like, that's the authentic audience that you as a Turkish writer should be writing for your people. And he says, you know, that's just not realistic. The mm -hmm. fact is that like, I write for whoever wants to read me. Like, in Turkish culture, literature is very instrumentalized, like Turkish in Turkish schools, people learn about literature primarily, they have to memorize the names of national authors more than they have to read the literature because literature is understood to be like part of the sort of cultural heritage and part of the construction of the nation, but not really important as, a, as art particularly. Like it's important because it's culturally it politically significant. I, yeah, in a way, I think Gauss and Jen is also uh, has a similar vision um, mm -hmm. because he, he, he's also, he, he studied French uh, in university and therefore he became fluent and he was able to read uh, French literature directly uh, in the French original language. And so he already has this global vision and um, maybe that's the reason why he people call him like a very transcultural writer because he uh, not only writes in Chinese language, but he's also including uh, uh, French aesthetics, you know, the avant-garde modernist uh, sensibilities into his writings. Um, do you think Pamuk also has that type of transcultural dimension to his work? Oh, definitely. I mean, he, you know, when he talks about the writers who are really important to him, a lot of them are Turkish writers and a lot of them are not, you know, he's, a, he's someone who is actually just, I mean, he's, he's a very natural entry to world literature, I think, because his own cultural formation is very, um, you know, he talks about Borges and Calvino, like he has a sort of very sort of I mean, I think what we would now call kind of like a classically transnational kind of cultural formation. Um, 
And I think it makes him very, and he's, you know, he's lived in the United States a lot. He, I, I think um, he's very aware of Western expectations. Like what is an American reader or a European reader going to conclude from this? What do they know and what do they not know? You're now listening to the Cultural Life of the Nobel Prize Literature Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at nobelculturallife.wordpress.com. Now, back to the podcast. Do you think he uh, would maybe face a, a criticism that Stephen Owen would pose to uh, a lot of world like writers that tries to reach for a global audience? You know, this mm-hmm. idea that uh, some writers uh, write translated already in translation mm-hmm, which means mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think you're familiar with that argument right how mm-hmm, he, mm-hmm. he's talking about how Chinese poets a Chinese poet like Bei Dao uh, yes very political and has a very westernized approach to his writings but it's not for Stephen Owen not authentic enough because it seems already very readily translatable to a global mm-hmm. audience. Does mm-hmm. Tom suffer that type of criticism? Yeah. Oh, he suffers that criticism extremely harshly. I was always asking my Turkish mm-hmm. colleagues, like mm-hmm. maybe they're historians or whatever, like, how do you like Orhan Pamuk? And oftentimes they'd say like, oh, I don't really like him very much. Um, I don't think his, he doesn't write good Turkish. They would sometimes say his Turkish is, is poor. I mean, not that not that he's a native speaker, not that he's not a native speaker, but it's not beautiful. It's not like he writes these long, awkward sentences. They'll say, I like him better in English. I think he actually his English translators are very good. And but he's 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 too. And and that's kind of um, a sort of like sentence level complaint that is. Um, I think resonates deeper also that they're sort of exactly to your point. I think they think that he's so cognizant of the American or the English speaking reader that his, his whole construction of the novel is um, already is sort of born translated in that sense. Um, and, And to me, I would say that's, he, I mean, I can't speak to the question of how beautiful his Turkish is or isn't. That's like, that's, that's beyond me. But um, I think um, the idea that there are some writers who do write with a deep awareness of the transnationality of their audience, to me, just seems like a fact of life in the 21st mm-hmm. century. Yeah. Like that's just actually real. Like we mm-hmm. can't, I don't think it's fair to say that a writer is necessarily bad for that. Re- I mean, I would say a writer could handle that in a way that's good or bad. Like mm-hmm. some writers might be good at it and some writers might be bad at it. And to me, that is actually a very interesting question. But to yeah. say that it's necessarily a problem, I think is really like an ahistorical and frankly unfair complaint. Mm. Like, I just don't think a writer can be blamed for that. Yeah, I think when there is a seemingly very purely aesthetic complaint about a writer, right? Oftentimes there's a covert political tension underlying that where, but they don't just elaborate, right? So uh, maybe that's also, uh, you know, it just paves way to how Pamuk is very controversial, right? In, mm-hmm, in, mm-hmm. in, in Turkey. Can you uh, just 
maybe briefly give us an overview of what makes them controversial in, in Turkey? Oh, it's such, it's so interesting. I mean, I think, and actually, well, like sort of, I'll try to, I'll try to tell the story briefly. Mm. <laughs> I mean, he, so he, he, um, first of all, he's, he's the son of a sort of wealthy family. He, he, so he, his, his family was, um, he writes a lot about how his kind of, his family in the time of his youth was sort of um, coming down economically, that they had been this kind of very wealthy family in the early years of the Republic. And they were, so there's a sort of, I think um, in the kind of economic landscape of Turkey, there's a, there are sort of, um, a, there's a big class of new wealth there of sort of people who came into better economic times in recent, let's say between like, in the latter half of the 20th century. And so his family to those people were um, somewhat of a class enemy. They were kind of like um, on the same side of secularism, but a little bit um, aristocratic in a negative sense. And um, so that was kind of where he came from. And when he started to become the sort of the way that he, if you were to just sort of ask any Turkish person about Orhan Pamuk, the one thing that they would know, like that would sort of be the biggest thing, anyone would know this. Someone, I mean, people who have never read him and never will read him and don't even think about literature particularly know this, that he told a Swiss newspaper that um, he said, uh, I forget, ex I won't say the quote exactly correctly, but like so many people were killed in this country in the early part of the Republic and no one wants to talk about it but me. Right. So he didn't use the word genocide, but he was referring to the fact of the genocide and acknowledging it to a foreign journalist, a European journalist at the time. And this was at the time of negotiations with the EU when the EU was pressuring Turkey to acknowledge the genocide and, you know, the sort of dominant discourse in Turkey was that Europe wants Turkey to uh, wants Turkey to admit that it really is barbaric. That there was this sort of like um, Europe, and and you know, there's some basis for this, like that that like sort of European ideas of the the terrible Turk or the sort of barbarian to their east you know, that this idea of, of genocide recognition was wrapped up in that for Turkish people. And so they're like, that it was not a genocide. That's what Turkish people are taught in schools. They're taught like, yes, people died, but there was a war, there were, it, it was a cold winter, there were like all these things. It wasn't a genocide. That's what they're taught in school. And so they, the sort of popular perception was that Pamuk was really betraying his country by saying this and that he was doing it for to satisfy his own ambition, that he was like um, gratifying Western conceptions. And this is going back to this idea that we were talking about before, like this Western conception of what a writer should be, that a writer should kind of speak truth to power and all this stuff, that he was sort of fashioning himself that way in order to win the Nobel Prize. And that that is why he won the Nobel Prize. That
Right. Yeah. So he he gratified this yeah. Western concept of mm. what a writer should be speaking truth to power and all this stuff in it. So, and that in order to do that, he had to kind of cast the Turkish people as this sort of terrible Turk so that he could position himself in contrast to it. Like the Turkish people are barbaric, but I am not. That that was the sort of um, <laughs> line that he kind of became associated with. And so when he won the Nobel Prize shortly after that, Turkish people were like, oh, of course, Europe gave the prize to the guy who makes us look bad and him look good. That's mm -hmm. classic. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, well, <laughs> first of all, it, it, like, it, it makes sense that he would win the Nobel Prize, uh, at least to a certain extent because of his his remarks, right, his political remarks, right, because the the Nobel Prize is to reward the most outstanding literature in the most idealistic direction, right? And so the, yes, the idea yes. of idealistic direction, of course, up to a lot of different interpretations, right? But if we go into the larger context of the Nobel Prize itself is, you know, the, the good of mankind, right? And so right, one thing right. would be sort of peacemaking. Like a lot of Turkish people are like, well, I'm for genocide acknowledgement also, but mm. I still <laughs> think, I still think he's kind of an asshole. <laughs> like, they're like, even, even a lot of people who actually agree with him politically just found it distasteful the way that he kind of presented himself. And yeah. What, what about in the case of let's say in the West or maybe even the US, do Americans generally receive criticism less nationalistically? Or is that <laughs> That's case? a great question. That's a great question. I think that, um, I mean, well, first of all, I think one of the things that's really just kind of like side note, I think one of the things that's really interesting about this is the ways that like in this configuration of things, the non-Western writer like Pomuk or Gaoshingchen can't win. Like their their like their range of movement is so small. Like they're they're sort of like they're supposed to like no matter what they do, they're um it's like they have to speak out against their government. But if they do that, they're, they're like it's sort of the weight of Western expectation. I part of what I wanted to kind of um do with my book was to kind of because I know like anyone reading my book is reading it in English it's a sort of anglophone like I'm speaking to an anglophone kind of academic audience to kind of like I feel like we readers in our public should really like be more cognizant of the pressure that our expectations put on non-western writers that it's actually just quite weighty um the sort of pressure of that. So that was just something I wanted to say. Um, but your question, do Americans take it back? No. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I, think, I think there are certain kinds of criticisms that, let's say, I mean, the kinds of people who, who read Gaoxing Zhen or Hong Pamuk, uh, let's say an American reader who like knows those names, who like reads those types of books, there are certain kinds of criticisms that they can take very well because they it doesn't actually hurt them. Like they can say like, yes, the United States is a racist nation. Like, yes, our culture does have um, 
inequality, it can be very brutal in some ways. Like there are certain kinds of things I think that they can say pretty easily because they don't feel implicated. They, mm. they, maybe, they maybe feel implicated in certain, like it makes them uncomfortable. It makes everyone uncomfortable in, in certain ways. But to like speak it broadly as a problem is not difficult. I think the, the ones that they don't feel implicated in, it's because they feel that within the American context, which is problematic, they're on the side of right, that they're, mm. there's this idea of like, um, part of being American is like working toward a more perfect union that it's like, it's bad, but it could be better. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. And so I think that that sense, that kind of discourse gives Americans room for certain kinds of criticism without getting too upset about it. Mm -hmm. However, I think when you start, like, I think the, um, the Engdahl criticism, mm -hmm. for example, that, Americans are very insular, even when they think they're not, that like even the American readership of these kinds of novels, that when they think they're kind of engaging with a global culture, they're doing it in a very American way, and that that itself is problematic. I think things like that, people will get very defensive about. Like there are certain kinds of, they'll say, no, we're not. We're really quite like, you know, <laughs> I think there are certain kinds of things um, or like, you know, the sort of, I mean, to just sort of real, the kind of like blue state, red state thing is so strong that people are like, well, I'm in a blue state. I am, I have like a blue state mentality. I'm like, I'm part of the sort of liberal um, movement toward progress. And that, that enables some kinds of criticism, mm -hmm. but disables others. Yeah. Because, yeah, in your book, like you mentioned, you, you talk about how, for example, Mo Yan, uh, who, who uh, the first Chinese, uh, Chinese citizen to win a Nobel Prize, he uh, received a lot of flack from the Western uh, countries, Western readers, because he's a very close to the, the Chinese government, which is perceived to be a very authoritarian government. And so yeah. uh, he like he therefore people say, okay, first of all, why does he did he receive the Nobel Prize, which is supposed to be championing uh, free speech? And second of all, uh, how 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 good is his writing, right? If he can't really speak yeah. freely. Uh, and therefore your like your argument is, well, he is a writer who's doing his best in the situation presented to him. Actually, I would be really interested to know what you think of Moyan because I that was kind of my conclusion based on what I know, but I am not an expert in the Chinese sort of situation nor in Moyan. So what do you think about yeah, that? Uh, uh, so yeah, I'm actually interviewing uh, Shelly Chan who wrote the first book in English on Moyan. So I definitely want to uh, seek her uh, opinion on that well. But from, from my perspective, initially I, I also shared a similar perspective to the, the Western readers because I, I, I just saw him as, yeah, he's like the, the formerly the vice president of the Chinese Writers Association, which means he is very 
high in the rankings and influence yeah. of state-controlled literary right. field. So, right. yeah, it, 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 logically speaking, it, it kind of makes sense, right? Like, well, he is basically part of the institution establishment. How, how, you know, how valuable or how free his writings could be. But on the other hand, you know, supporters of Mo Yan um, would be saying, well, this guy is actually also very subversive as well. That's what Shelley Chan's book is about. Like he, he talks about Mo Yan as a subversive voice in China. Um, mm -hmm. And he's subversive because he doesn't comment on the government directly, but he's still talking about social inequalities, but mm -hmm. he's not going to the point of denouncing the ruling party itself. So right. if you think of it that way, then yeah, I mean, he's still kind of like a social writer, right? He's still kind of a, yeah. a writer that tries to give voice to the marginalized people. Yeah. That he doesn't go all the way to trying to challenge the core of Chinese society. So you, if you think of it that way, then yes, he's still somewhat of a peacemaker of sorts, right? It's just that right. he's... But maybe my 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 view is, yes, he is in the Chinese context or what the Chinese people always say, the Chinese government always say, the Chinese characteristics, right? right. They, they have this, he's a protest writer with Chinese characteristics, which means hmm. he is someone who isn't going to go all the way because he right. knows the boundaries of it. I mean, I also think that like, I, I think this is one of those things that is very hard for American readers to understand because it because in the American context or the European context, the idea that a writer is going to challenge their government is so ineffectual. Like a writer, you know, every writer is like, oh, my government is, you know, wrong in all these ways. Like every writer, like that's a sort of basic assumption like most writers have like very leftist politics in the American and European context and they will speak out all the time and speak out so predictably that it's actually just it doesn't it doesn't accomplish anything and in the context of being critical of someone like Mo Yan I don't think most American or European writer uh, or readers have a sense that like if Mo Yan were to really question the things he's not questioning, if he were to cross the boundaries he's not crossing, that would dominate his entire life. Mm -hmm. Like if he wants to actually write novels, he does have to kind of stay within certain boundaries that are actually just like, I, I feel like the, the difficulty of crossing those boundaries is something that I don't mm -hmm. think most American and European writers appreciate. Thank you for listening, and we hope you have enjoyed this conversation. You can learn more about the cultural life of the Nobel Prize in Literature at nobelculturallife.wordpress.com. Please also subscribe to our podcast on Spotify and all major podcast platforms. The Cultural Life of the Nobel Prize in Literature podcast is hosted by Michael Ka Chi Chuck. The production team is Audrey Chen, Celine Wong, and Gwen Wong.